0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives.
1: Ever considered what makes the faith of some so courageous? What is it about some people that they can endure suffering and hardship and trial in their life and stand very confidently, very firm, and yet it seems like so few of us can do that in our own lives? If you do a little study of church history and you go back and look at men and women in the church that have followed Christ, Uh, You may come across a specific group of people that that the church knows as of martyrs, And, and in their lives you would discover some amazing stories of courageous faith. I would point out two of them this morning. One is a man uh, man by the name of Polycarp. He was a pastor in the city of Smyrna, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey. Um, And he was arrested by the governing authorities because he had been preaching the gospel of Christ and preaching Jesus as Lord. And this was when the Roman Empire had outlawed Christianity. In fact, they said that only Caesar is Lord, and to worship anyone else as Lord is illegal. It's wrong. And so he was turned over by some jealous Jews, much like our story today, called to recant his faith and turn away from Christ and proclaim Caesar is Lord, not just Jesus is Lord alone. And he wouldn't do it. He said something to the effect of, how could I be unfaithful to the one who over so many years has been faithful to me? Because of his stalwart faith, he was burned at the stake because he wouldn't recant. He wouldn't turn away. Or consider... The young girl Agnes. Agnes was probably a young teenager, 12 or 13 years old. She too lived in the city of Rome and was a devout Christian follower of Jesus in the time when it was illegal for her to be a Christian. And yet she was a follower of Jesus and lived in a very uh, prominent family. But her peers, her classmates, began to realize that she was different. She held a convictional faith, she held a life of purity and honoring God in, in all things, and, and her peers became jealous of that and realized she is, lives this way, this life of character and conviction, because of her faith in Jesus, and so they began to bully and attack her. She was outed as a Christian, she was exposed to the, to the governing authorities and, and declared that she was a follower of Jesus, and they, they called her to recant her faith and to turn away from Christ, but she wouldn't. She would not refuse her faith in Jesus Christ. And so, because she wouldn't recant, she was publicly taken out and stripped in front of everyone, drugged through the streets of Rome, violated, and then, because she wouldn't stop proclaiming Christ, she was decapitated so that her voice could no longer be heard. I could tell you more stories. Further stories of men and women like these who in their courage they saw Christ, they trusted Him, and they were courageous with their faith. And and we might wonder what's the common denominator among all of them. It's simply that in their lives they refused to worship the idols of this world. They would not bow down to anyone but to Christ. This has been the story of God's people throughout history Courageous faith rejects idolatrous worship. People of of courageous faith are ones that will reject the idols of their day and their time. But you and I might look at their stories. We might hear these stories of these courageous saints and and they're suffering and they're paying the ultimate price. And we might look and say, Well, I'm glad that a Polycarp or, or an Agnes could do that, but I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have that kind of courage. I don't think I could stand when they did. But I want to tell you, I think you might be wrong. I, I think that courageous faith is a faith that every one of us can possess. It's something that we can aspire to and we can have in our lives as well. And it's, it's by the example of these martyrs, it's the example of those in Scripture like we see today in Daniel chapter 3, that we can see a way forward for us to become people who have deep, courageous faith that rejects the idolatrous worship of this world. So as we look at Daniel chapter 3 this morning, I hope that our imaginations are caught by what happens here in this story, and that, that by seeing the life of these three men, that we too would see how our faith can be informed, how we can become courageous like they are and how they have been. I'm just curious by a show of hands, so there's just a little poll here this morning. How many of you have heard the story of Daniel, or of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How many of you are familiar with this? Okay. Most everybody here knows this one, right? These three guys, they won't bow to the idol. The king's like, he gets mad, throws them in a fiery furnace, and there's a fourth person with them, and God delivers them. It's a great story. And it's one that I think we should tell our kids often because it does fortify our faith. It helps us know how to stand in the midst of, of pressure to compromise. But to have courageous faith like this, we need to walk through this story with a little bit more of a a discerning eye. Let's let's see what really these men were about and how they trusted the Lord. To have this courageous faith that rejects idolatrous worship starts, first of all, when we reject cultural idolatry. It starts when we reject cultural idolatry. And here we, we come across King Nebuchadnezzar once again. As we've been studying through Daniel, uh, we've, we've seen this king who's got a big ego, he's, he's pretty much thinking he's the best king ever, and he has some dreams and visions that maybe even perhaps inflate his ego and his view of himself. He just, you know, God has told him in this dream he had, we saw last week in chapter two, there's this statue of gold, and the head uh, of the statue is gold, and that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. So he, I don't know if he just like decides, like, hey, that was a pretty cool dream, maybe I should make it a reality or whatnot, but he decides he's going to build a tall statue, A tall golden statue. The scripture says its height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. In modern equivalents, that's 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. So a really tall, really skinny golden statue to himself, for him. Now that just points out, at least to me, just how foolish idols are, right? We make them big, but we don't make them solid, I mean, think could topple over in any moment, in any way. But here he's made this big statue to himself, for himself, uh, to, to worship himself. He's just got a big ego and big head about himself. And, and what he does is he, he decides he's going to get everybody together. Now, you probably recalled in my reading that there was a list of individuals or at least a list of, of categories or occupations that I read that were repeated over and over again. And I think that's the reader or the writer just telling us, this is how absurd this is. Like, we've got to gather everybody, but we can't just say everybody. We've got to list them out. We've got, we've got the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the text says it over and over again. It's like just getting us the sense of, like, everybody in the government, Everybody in Babylon is in on this. They're all summoned to worship this this idol, this huge statue to Nebuchadnezzar. He puts it down in the plain of Dura. He calls everybody together, and he gets his herald, his his proclaimer out in front of them, and he makes a decree. It's a command, verse 4 says. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear... And again, the absurdity of all this is just brought out. Why not just say, when you hear the music, but no, again we've got to list all these instruments, and the writer of Daniel does this many times over. He's showing by reputation in, uh, repetition in this passage just how foolish this is. We've got all these musical instruments, all these things, and whenever they're played, everybody is supposed to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There's another note for us as well. That phrase, King Nebuchadnezzar set up, is used hand just over and over and over again. I think at least 10 times here in just 18 verses, that phrase is there. Idols are things that are man-made. They're things that we set up and we worship and we acknowledge as as great and God over us. They're not from God, they're man-made. So catch this. We've got this big worship service with this big egoed king, worshiping this big tall statue that he's made, and everybody is supposed to be on it when this music plays. By the way, if you like, got all of these instruments together, I think it would be the weirdest music in the entire world. It would make techno sound normal. Um, I, it's just really, really interesting. Um, we're not going to attempt it. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does, right? Everybody's going to come. Everybody's going to worship the golden image, bow down to it. Oh, and there's a consequence to all this. If you don't do this, if you don't do this, verse 6, whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a BFF, a burning, fiery furnace, right? That's, that's there. I, again, the repetition here is something to note, right? I think most furnaces have fire and they're burning in them, right? It's a little redundant here to say burning, fiery furnace. But again, the writer is just wanting us to see the absurdity of all this. Of course, it's a, Of course there's fire. Of course it's burning. Now, why is Nebuchadnezzar after this? Well, some have suggested that it's because he is wanting to make sure that there is complete and total loyalty to him in his kingdom. And he's looking to find anyone who would be disloyal to him so he can eradicate them. He's he's the king over the entire empire, and yet he's so insecure that he has to set up an idol to worship to find out who wouldn't be on his side so he can eliminate them. So here it is. He gets the image set up. The proclamation goes out. Verse 7 says, All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And it seems like that's a tot- total thing. Universally, everybody, there's no problem here. There's complete loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. But then verse, 11, or verse 8 tells us that that wasn't necessarily the case. You see, there's a group of Chaldeans, these are the Babylonian wise men, and, and they are watching. They have their eyes particularly on a significant group of of Jewish young men. These Jewish young men are the ones who have been established as the the governors. They're they're overseeing the affairs of the province of Babylon. So they're in the capital city. They're, They're administrators in the government, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these Chaldeans have been watching them because they know that Jews worship one God. Can they be loyal to King Nebuchadnezzar as well? Maybe these Chaldeans wanted their roles or jobs, whatever it is, but they're watching. And that should be something for us to note about our faith as well. The world is watching. People are watching the way that you follow Jesus Christ. They are are giving attention to your faithfulness or your unfaithfulness to God and to who He is. They are watching your character and your words. They're, they're, They're interested in, are you a consistent Christian human being? They're paying attention and they see that consistency. They see that these young men will not bow down. They did not bow down to the king. And so they come into his court in verse 9 and they say, oh king, live forever. You made a decree that everyone who hears the music, every kind, should fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't, they'll be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And yet, and they, they, it's like like King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know these guys. There are certain Jews you have appointed, so they're almost like it's your fault here. But here's these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O King, and notice the way that they position this. They pay you no attention. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're rebels. They're against you, O King. They're committing treason. Kill them all. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, we find in verse 13, he, he is angered by this. He, The passage says he is in a furious rage. That's just how big his ego is. He just offers three guys in his kingdom, like, trip him up, foil him, and he just blows his stack at them. So he commanded, like, get these guys in here right now. We've got to deal with this. And I think there's a little bit of some confusion in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. Like, everybody's falling down in worship, except these three guys, like, Oh wait, maybe they missed the memo. Maybe the herald wasn't as clear in his communication. You know, a lot of these things had to be translated from one language to another. And so maybe they didn't get it right. Maybe they just heard, like, oh, that doesn't apply to us, whatever it is. The king's like, get these guys in here. We're gonna get clarity now. We're gonna find out what happened. And so he brings them before him. And and he's expecting to hear the right answer. He says to them in verse 14, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Again, like, is that is that the case? Is that true? Now, if if you're willing and ready, he says, let's okay, let's just clear this up. If you're ready, whenever you hear the sound of the music, all these different kinds of instruments and every kind, fall down and worship and the image I have made. And if you do, that's well and good. It won't be an issue. We'll just move on. But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And he lays out this threat, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Again, he just sees himself as like, I'm the greatest. Like, I'm the the most powerful, most impressive person in the universe. And there's not one God in all the gods that can deliver you from me. These men have a deep faith. The situation here is that these men trust the Lord. These men have grown up hearing the scriptures and being encouraged for what this, the law of God says. Just go to the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no gods before me. That's their heart. And they know the second commandment as well. You shall not make a graven image, a, a statue, and fall down and worship it. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the pressure is on. Even though everyone else bowed, the pressure is on. These three won't bow. They've rejected worshiping the idols of their culture. And it's a question for us have we as well? I think this story here, one of the powerful aspects of this story is it calls us to put ourselves in their shoes. What would we do? Would we be faithful and obedient to God above all else? We look at this situation and say, well, it's just obvious, right? It's an extreme situation. Every one of us, I would think, if. If the government rolled in a tall, golden statue today and said, everybody fall down and worship it, everyone here in this room, fall down and worship it, we'd laugh, I think. We'd say, absolutely not. That's stupid. No way. There's one God. He's a God in heaven. We're only going to worship Him. And yet, it's not just in the obvious situations, but it's when looking at the more subtle and less obvious situations that we need to assess our hearts. Years ago, I was in India uh, visiting some church planters and missionaries there and and doing some support work with an orphanage ministry that they had. And as I was just in the city that I was in, I noticed like every corner, there was a different shrine to a different God, a a different uh, place to stop and worship and all these different shrines, all these different gods. And it was apparent to me as a Westerner in an Eastern culture and an Eastern religion, their idolatry was obvious. And say you know, If you wanted to have a good day, you'd stop by the shrine of the God of good days and you'd offer food and sacrifices to him and then go along your commute. And if you wanted to have a happy marriage, you'd stop by the God of happy marriages and you'd offer an offering to them and go about your day hoping to have a happy marriage. And all these different gods, all these different things, all these different offerings and sacrifices are laid out. And yet I look at our own culture and I go, well, are we as, obvi- uh, are we as obvious idolaters as, as they would be in an Eastern culture? maybe not as obvious to our own eyes, but our idolatry is still there. We're just as idolatrous. To be loyal to Christ, we have to reject worshiping the idols of our culture. What are those idols of our culture? I mean, I could point out the idols of an of a Eastern culture that has Buddhism as a religion and many gods, but, but is it easy for us to see the idols that we may be wearing on our sweatshirts uh, right now at the moment? A little irony that I did that today. But can we identify them? Let me give you three ways I think we can identify the cultural idols of our time today. One, anything that demands our devotion in equal measure to or more than God. Anything that demands our devotion, demands our worship, demands demands our allegiance, in equal measure or more than God is is an idol. Secondly, anything that would be a worst-case scenario for us if we lost it, if we didn't have that thing we didn't have that relationship, if we didn't have that success, if we didn't have that status and it was gone from us, it would ruin our lives. It would, it would detract from our identity. We might even wonder, is life worth living if we didn't have it? Worst case scenario is the second thing. Thirdly, anything that promises to be any kind of savior from the problems and challenges of this world. We give our allegiance to it because it says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver you. I'm going to save you from the troubles of your life or the, the, the poverty that you feel or the hard things that you're walking through. I'm going to save you from that. That could be an idol for our lives. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, identifies money, sex, and power as three of the greatest cultural idols of the United States in our time. We can idolize politics, pleasure, people, power. Are we aware of them? Can we reject them? Do we have the conviction and the courage renounce the idols of our day and time, to not bow the knee to them, to not fall down when the music plays, of the false gods of our day and our time. Becoming people of courageous faith is a matter of rejecting our cultural idols. But secondly, it also means that we would refuse to compromise. We would refuse to compromise. So yes, Nebuchadnezzar, he's in a rage. He brings these guys in. Is it true you don't, that, you, um, that you didn't serve my gods, that you didn't worship them? So he sets it up. I'm going to play the music. You'll bow down. All well and good. If you don't, immediately, tossed into the fire. He he repeats exactly what the command of the herald was. You'll be cast in the fiery furnace. And who's the God who will save you? Who's the God who can deliver you? There's no one else. He lays out a question of their loyalty to Yahweh, their loyalty to God himself. He doesn't know God. He thinks there is no one who can deliver them. He thinks, Nebuchadnezzar thinks, he is the only ultimate power. And so what do these guys say? I mean, again, imagine yourself being in their position, in their shoes. What will you say at this moment? And, and I think that this is really an important for us to think about because... In verses 1 through 12, we get the sense that this is out in the public. This is a broad, open thing. Everybody's falling down and worshiping, and these guys didn't. But here it's a little bit of a different setting because the king has ushered them into his, into his court. They're in the middle of, of the, the throne room with the king, and so it's a much smaller setting. There's perhaps King Nebuchadnezzar, these three guys, maybe a few other officials in there, but it's a smaller room. Now's the opportunity for him to say, right here, right now, We'll play the music, the band will strike it up, you guys fall down and worship. It doesn't have to go big and broad and public. We're not going to post this on the internet or anything like that. You just guys, right here in the midst of the seven of us, why don't you just, the music will play, you fall down and worship the statue, we're great. No harm, no foul. The king is encouraging them and driving them towards a compromise. And that's what idols do. They say, hey, okay, well, listen, you don't have to take it and carry it out in the big wide world, like not everybody has to know about it. But just just in your small little network, maybe just in your household, you know, just just bow down and worship at home. Like that's, that's all that anybody needs to see is your devotion there. In the midst of that setting, he's calling them to this compromise, to this bowing of their knee when very few others will see, but yet they will display their lack of loyalty to God and their loyalty to King Nebuchadnezzar. How do you answer? How do you answer in the moments of the small things? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say this in verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I mean, they just say, like, this is not a dig on the king. They're just saying, like, the evidence speaks for itself. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's not really a case that, that uh, leaves us out of guilt in your eyes. Yeah, sure, we're not going to bow down to your idol. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If, if this be so, that you're going to kill us because we won't bow down... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. It's Like, the furnace is one thing. Your hand, O king, is another thing. Like, God will deliver us from it all. He'll protect us from it and from you. But then they, they take another step deeper with their faith in verse 18. But if not, so if God doesn't deliver us, if we do end up martyrs and die in the fire, be it known to you, O king. We won't serve your gods. We won't worship the golden image you have set up. They refuse to compromise at every point, even if it costs them their life, even at the most ultimate consequence. Compromise isn't on the table. My friends, this is resilient, convictional faith. And again, it asks the question, what, what would you do? Could you say something like this? Literally, when your life is on the line and it's bow or burn, could you say, I'm not going to bow the knee to your false gods? Even only seven people see us. Even if it's just in this little household, this little room, I'm not going to compromise on Christ. Friends, if we're going to be loyal and obedient to Christ, we have to refuse to compromise. And the refusal to compromise, it doesn't just come in the big crux moments of the issue. This refusal, I believe, was practiced moment by moment, day by day, and affirmed in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before they ever got to the big moment itself. I've been reading this last week, a book about Alex Honnold um, and his free solo of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park back in 2017. If you've seen the the documentary film Free Solo, that's the the story about that that guy. uh, El Capitan is a 3,000-foot sheer a vertical granite cliff, and Alex Honnold is the first and only individual to ever climb that thing without ropes. It's a little nuts, <laughs> uh, if you ask me. The documentary will just will just make you nervous the whole time. But but in the book, I, as I was reading about it, Honnold goes, and uh, I, I find that what makes his climb so impressive is not the fact that he did it without ropes and succeeded. The fact of the matter is. How did he do that? How was he able to, like Spider-Man, just scale up this 3,000-foot granite cliff relatively easily, it looked like, and get to the top without falling and dying? It's because he had spent years and years and years of his life practicing that wall, practicing that climb, practicing the foothold and the, the finger holds of that mountain with the ropes. He did and learned in the small things the greater mountain, and the greater climb itself so he could do it successfully without needing the ropes. He spent years of his life climbing that wall. He didn't achieve it just because he was some freak athlete, but he had practiced and rehearsed every position, every climb. He had gone back even the weeks before and spent hours and hours and hours on little portions of the wall like the monster problem that were just a big problem to him. That's how he did it here's my point. These three men were able to stand firm in their convictions and remain obedient and loyal to God because they had a lifestyle of faith and obedience to God to begin with. They had been convictionally challenged to refuse, to compromise. And so when the big moment came, they could say the big thing because they had already had a life of consistency all the way along. Someone has said that that's what character is. Character is what you are when no one's looking. Character is what you are in the dark when no one sees. So you and I, to remain obedient and loyal to Christ, need to own and practice this convictional spirit. Regardless of the consequences, will we be obedient to Christ? Will we follow his word and his way? Will we uphold God as God in our life and reject the moments and opportunities when we can take the small spiritual shortcut, where we can compromise in just a little way? We must be people of courageous conviction and devotion to God in all things. So we would reject the cultural idolatry. We would refuse to compromise in our lives. And to become people of courageous faith finally means that we must trust in God's deliverance. We would trust in God's deliverance. Now I would encourage you to read verses 19 to 30 at some point here. The story really winds up to this incredible act of God's deliverance. God comes through for his people. He delivers his people from the midst of their, their fiery furnaces. Here's, here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar is adamant. Like, if you thought he was mad in verse 13, when you get to verse 19, he's a volcano of fury. He is so angry. Like he is as angry as the furnace is hot. And he makes it all the hotter. His his posture has changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he says, listen. Heat that furnace up seven times hotter. Like make it as hot as you can get it. They do that. He takes some of his mighty men. That's like the the SEAL Team Six guys. He takes them and says, "Go bind up these three men. Make it, there's no way they're escaping. There's no way they're getting out of the fire. Like it's sure doom for them." And so he heats up the furnace, binds Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and has these men take them to the furnace. The furnace, in fact, is so hot that the passage tells us that the the mighty men that take and throw them into the fire, they are consumed by the fire itself. They're killed because of the heat. This is just Nebuchadnezzar's fury and rage. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace, verse 23. And Nebuchadnezzar's watching this. He wants to see their doom. He wants to see their demise and celebrate it. And then he realizes something. Verse 24 says that he was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? I was like, guys, I'm not bad at math, but like, I think we threw three in, but, but there's something else here. And they're like, yes, king, it was three. And he said, but I see four men, verse 25. I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who is that there? Nebuchadnezzar is asking for an explanation. We are as well. He has to find out. So he summons the the three men out of the furnace. says, guys, come on out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. He's beginning to get a bigger theology about who the God is that they worship come out, come here, we want to know. They came out of the fire, and everyone's seeing that the power, the fire has no power over them. I love how the text describes it. Everybody's watching this. These guys aren't consumed. The hairs of their head were not singed, cloaks not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. That's a feat in and of itself, because if you're ever out at a fall or summer bonfire with just a little bonfire, everybody smells like a smoke pit, right? It just, that's it. And they don't. God's done something. And so they see all this and Nebuchadnezzar says to them, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their god. These men's faith is a testimony to a pagan king that there is a God on high. Their their stalwart resilience and their refusal to compromise testifies to the Lord God among a pagan place. And as Nebuchadnezzar reflects on that, he realizes God is the one who has delivered them. That fourth man in the fire, the one that Nebuchadnezzar says, looked like a son of the gods. And he describes him as an angel. He is recognizing that that is one God has sent to deliver these men. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God Most High, has delivered his people. He has rescued them from the fire. I believe that that person in the fire with them is Christ. They're present with his people. God's deliverer sent for them and sent for us to deliver us. And that points to the good news here. You see, like unlike these men, these men who were honoring God by their faith, in their disobedience to the king, we deserve death. We deserve the worst hell, the greatest fire. Because we have dishonored God and we have worshiped human-made idols. And yet God sent his son to deliver us from the fires of hell. He sent us to stand in our place who went to the cross and died in our place for our sin. So that we would never have to taste hell, but we could have eternal life with him forever. Just as Christ did in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for everyone who trusts in him. He will deliver you as well. We may may not have the exact moment and detail and designs of God's deliverance in our life, but this story is a testimony to us of the God who delivers and saves his people. He rescues them. He rescues us. It points us to Christ and His sacrifice for us. It points us to God and His providence over all things, which Paul reminds us in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work uh, work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. He does all things for the sake of His glory and our ultimate good. He sends a deliverer on our behalf. Friends, that's why these men could have courage to stand up, against a a king full of himself, against a fire that was set to consume them. They could stand up against the cultural idols of their day and time and say, we have one God and one God alone, and we will worship him and we will not budge on that. They could do that because they knew they had a deliverer. They knew they had a God who would rescue them, ultimately, a God who loved them. Friends, that's the same reason You and I can have the same courage in our own faith. Christ has come for us. He is our deliverer from Satan, from sin, from death, from hell. He loves you. Do you trust him? So let me ask, what kind of faith do you have? The example of this story inspires us to have faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's a faith that's accessible to every one of us. The faith of these three men, the faith of Daniel, the faith of Polycarp, the faith of Agnes. The faith to say, Christ is our king, he is our Lord, and I will walk with him and follow him in everything because he is the deliverer. You can trust and depend on the God who delivers from the fire of hell because he has sent his son to walk through that fire for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for sending him on our behalf. When we didn't deserve a rescuer, we have bowed down to to the idols of this time and this culture. And so Lord, forgive us for that, but free us from these idols. Give us, give us strong conviction and strong faith in you so that we don't compromise, that we live a life that is distinct in the midst of a, a hostile culture and a hostile world. Fix our eyes on Christ, who has gone before us, who stands with us, and who has tasted the fire of death So that we would never have to. Bless us and build us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.